Hey everybody, it's Kenneth from Recording Lounge. It's February 7th, 2013. I uh, couldn't get a show out last month. I actually started this show back in the end of January, but uh, didn't have time to finish it. So I got a lot of response from the How to EQ show that talked about sort of my method for EQing things, um, which will help you not you know, get too... St- crazy with the EQ and get really focused on what it is that you actually need to do. And it'll also help you not do things in solo. It really helps you listen um, to the whole track as a singular piece of music, which it is, and EQ things based on the sound in the whole track, not just how does it sound on its own. So I got a lot of good response from that, so I'm really glad that you guys uh, found that show very helpful and everything. So today I sort of thought that I would Share some more methodologies. Now, I got a request on Facebook, and uh, or maybe it was through email, I don't remember, to sort of go through um, what it is that I do when I start a mix. Now, it's interesting because this is really similar to the EQ show, sort of a methodology of how I start a mix. So basically, I'll take you through it, step one to step whatever. I don't know how many steps. Um, so the first thing to remember is that mixing is different for everybody. Everyone has their own approach to mixing and neither is wrong or right i know some people that mix things in a certain methodical sort of way which is more like how i mix i mix sort of little decisions at a time and i have sort of patterns that i go through Uh, other people mix in sort of more of a random way sort of whatever feels right for the exact moment and for me just to stay organized i feel like i have to do things in sort of an order have a sort of a routine when i start a mix And it's not as simple as just saying, oh, how do you start a mix from the overheads or whatever? It's not about that because obviously a song might not have drums. So how do you start a mix? What do you do? So basically, um, when I start a mix, let's say that all you have is tracks, right? You get the WAV files and they are sent to you and um, you start a mix from scratch. That is the first topic of today, which is I do think you should start a mix from scratch. I am not the type of person... I've tried. I've tried for a long time to uh, record something and then kind of mix it as I go. And sometimes that works, but sometimes it doesn't. What I usually find myself doing is if I've recorded a song, let's say I've recorded your typical rock song with drums, bass, guitar, guitar, piano, vocal, and maybe some backing vocals. I might mix it as I go, sort of to keep the band involved and keep them sort of understanding that it will evolve over time and you know we want to add this reverb on the vocal like that's a very specific effect that we like and that is the reverb that we're going to use in the mix stuff like that what i do once the whole song is recorded and once we're very clear like this song is done it's been recorded those sessions are over what i will do is i will save that mix and call it the rough mix i would basically pretend that i'm not the one who's going to mix it right I will save that as a rough mix, and then what I will do is I will save a copy of the session as, you know, restarted. That's exactly what I put at the end of the name. So let's say the song is called I Miss You, right? Whatever. So it would say I Miss You Rough Mix, but then I'll save a copy and it'll say I Miss You Restarted. And then in that session, I'll go through and I'll clear all the plugins, I'll clear all the levels so everything's up at zero. And notice I said up at zero, not down at negative infinity. So everything's up at zero. Then I have this sort of methodical approach to what I do from that point on. First, I will go through all the tracks and name them. This is very important. 
I can't tell you how annoying it is to get a track that's named, you know, Audio 01. That's really, really, really annoying. Sometimes I get in the habit of doing it myself. You know, we say, hey, I want to add this quick part. So you add a new track and you forget to name it and you record it. Well, that's just annoying. So what you need to do is go in and name all your tracks and name them appropriately. You know, don't just say snare. Say snare top. You know, don't just say kick or, you know, kick one and kick two. Say kick inside and kick outside. Don't just say rhythm guitar you know, say like verse guitar rhythm or verse rhythm guitar or, you know, you can't, and, and if something, you know, for example, John's electric, like that doesn't tell you anything. Um, don't, don't do that. That's not good practice. You know, name it something that's usable to you, like rhythm electric guitar or verse electric guitar or lead guitar. Give them good names. Give them names that make sense. You can glance at it and know exactly what it is. Lead vocal. You know, don't... And if it's a double, don't say lead vocal two. You know, it's lead vocal double. You know, something like that. So get in the habit of doing that. Get in the habit of naming your tracks appropriately. Right after that, I will... And, you know, of course, you'll have to listen to them. You'll have to listen to some things and really know what it is. Um, And if there are any notes that you need to write down, I know that Pro Tools has notes. I know that Nuendo's got notes. I'm pretty sure Cubase has notes. Um, Write notes in there for yourself, you know, something like ideas that you might have for the part or things like that. You might listen to some parts and listen for problems and listen for things and make notes on them. Right after that, I will color code the tracks. That helps me sort of have an association of what they are without having to actually read. Every session I ever do, drums are always gray. Bass is always purple. Guitars are always green. Uh, piano and uh, organ or any, any sort of keys part is always red. Lead vocals for a guy are always blue. Lead vocals for a female are always pink. You know, basic, simple stuff like that. But every session I do, every single one is the same way. So when I look at my session I'm looking at right now, for example, I'm, I've got a session pulled up. I know exa- I don't even have to read. I know exactly all the keys parts are here, all the guitars are here, all the vocals are here, you know, and I'll do shades of things. So um, if they're backing vocals, I will do like a lighter shade of blue for a guy or a lighter shade of pink for a girl. Um, if they're guitars, if they're rhythm guitars, I might do a light green. If they're lead guitars, I might do a dark green, stuff like that. But the same basic group is all the same. You know, backing vocals are always sort of a lighter shade of the lead. And drums are always gray. Bass is always purple. Keys are always red. I just I just know that. I don't even have to look. Um, that helps with association. Another thing that helps with the association is putting tracks in the exact same order every time. So when I'm looking at my session, vocals are always on top. The lead vocal is always track one. Always that. Then I've got my backing vocals right beneath the lead vocals. And then after that, I've got my drums. After that, I've got my bass. After that, I've got my guitars. After that, I've got my keys. After that, I've got my effects. You know, so it, it, it's the same way every time. I don't even have to look at a session or for, for more than a, a second to know where everything is. And um, again, and if the tracks are named properly, once you say, okay, what's that guitar doing? You know your eyes snap to the green. And then, of course, you can use whatever color you want. But my eyes will snap to the green. And then, because I've named the tracks well, I can look for the parts. Um, you should be able to mix a song without looking at the edit window. That's a big thing for me. Like, you should be able to maximize the mixer on your screen with no edit window and just mix with that. If you can't mix with that, then you need to come up with these systems to do association based on where the track is in the session, 
you know, on a mixer, for example, how far left or right it is, um, and uh, what color it is, and what name it has. And so all these things help you create these efficient ways of mixing that are intuitive and they're quick and they help you mix quicker. Um, and that's a good thing. You want to remove as many you know obstacles as you can. For every five seconds that you spend reading a track name or listening to a track and trying to figure out what it is, it takes you out of the moment. It takes you out of the creative element and you're sitting there like, okay, what what part is this again? And you're just doing this whole like, you know, cycle thing where you're on this endless cycle of being unorganized and okay, it's called audio one. Were we gonna use that or were we gonna dump that or I forget what part this is and all that. Um, you know, it needs to be clear. A big one, you know, what if you didn't name your vocal tracks and it's like, crap, is that the lead or is that the double? You know, then you'd have to listen to them to see which one was better, see which one was the lead. You know, stuff like that, it can really get complicated. Now from this point, again, I haven't done anything. I haven't really even listened to the mix. I've just sort of, you know, organized my session, okay? And uh, again, I find it invaluable to do that. And um, so, and again, my rough mix that I had before, uh, the one that we used in the session, that's already saved. That's saved in another folder that's completely not touched. So I can go back to that if I ever need to. Um, but this is that new session, right? Then what I do is gain staging. Now, um, this is something that I have developed as a technique. It's not my own. I'm, I'm just going to clear that right now. I did not make this up, but I have developed this into my workflow uh, that works for me based on tons of articles that I've read, written from really top dog producers and different books that I've read about headroom and dynamic range and levels and operating headroom and all this stuff to get a clean, clear signal and to get minimal distortion um, and to just get the best sound possible. So if you want to read more about this, there's a great article called something like uh, Why In-The-Box Mixes Don't Sound Like Analog Mixes. And um, it's written... There are a lot of contributors to the article, and as far as I know, the main are, and forgive me if this is wrong, if you guys ever hear this, um, the main contributors, I believe, are uh, Skip Burroughs, Paul White, and Paul Frindle, I think. That might be wrong. I don't remember exactly, but uh, there's some great informate there's some great information in there about headroom and about you know getting a clean, clear signal in uh, analog and digital. Here's the, here's the theory, and uh, this is in my book that, uh, again, I'm still working on and uh, trying to work out a lot of different things. However, it should be out in digital version before it's out in print version. Um, the digital version, I believe, will be $14.99. The print version will be $24.99. Now, the print version obviously has it's sometimes a little easier to read at the graphs, and you can write in the book and highlight things and whatever. But um, I should have a digital version available sometime very, very, very soon. But so this is in my book about that. Basically, the theory stems from um, people would say analog consoles have more headroom than digital. So what is headroom? Um, headroom is basically the space between the loudest level that is recorded and clipping. Now, in analog, clipping is sort of hard to describe because it happens a lot easier. So clipping might happen at, let's say, zero in analog. Let's say that's when it starts to clip. But it's very subtle clipping to the point where you almost can't hear it. And then let's say at plus four, it's a little more noticeable. Plus six, it's really noticeable. Plus 10, it's extremely noticeable. 
and then plus uh, 15, it actually sounds kind of like distortion, and plus 20, it's just really distorted. So it's a little hard because in digital, it clips at zero, and it clips, and it's noticeable. The idea is that an analog console might have, might be able to have headroom above zero up to like maybe plus 20, something like that, plus 25. So you could drive a track up to plus 25 before it really sounded, you know, god awful, just terrible. You know, but a lot of guys, you might, you know, plug it up to plus one, plus two, plus three, plus four, and it sounded great. It sounded fine. It had some compression to it. It sounded warm and fat. It had some grit to it. And that's fine. That's great. But in digital, um, we clip at zero, you know, zero. And our track levels are, you know, negative six, negative 10, negative 20, whatever. So the idea is that, okay, let's say, let's say extreme clipping on a console is 20 dB plus 20. That means that we had 20 dB of headroom above zero. Well, in the digital world, we don't have any headroom above zero. It sounds awful at zero. So if our track is negative six, you know, we have six dB of headroom. Well, on a console, we had 20. Now, if you, let's say it was plus 20 as the max. If you had a track in digital that was set at negative six dB, you know, a fader, right? And, and the peaks were hitting negative six dB. That means that you had about six dB of headroom, right? Between that and zero. If you had negative six dB on an analog console, you might have 26 dB before serious, awful, awful sounding distortion. So now it might be something more like 15, depending on the console, or 10, you never know. But um, basically you had more. Now digital has tons of headroom. 24-bit audio has tons of dynamic range. 144 decibels is the full dynamic range of 24-bit digital. And a console might only have that of 80 or 90 or 100. So just depending, again, on the model. So it just all depends on the gear, but we don't have, we're not running out of headroom in digital. We got tons of headroom in digital. We just don't use it. So the idea is you want to make sure your tracks all have headroom before clipping because I will say this, and I don't care if you believe me or not because it's true, it just is true. You can clip plugins. They will clip and can clip. They might not show it, but you can clip them. Waves plugins have a clip meter. Almost every Waves plugin that there has ever been made has a clip meter that shows when the plugin is actually clipping. Now, can you hear it? Maybe not, um, because our ears are, um, they, they can't necessarily hear distortion if it's very quick. So if it's, you know, a transient, like from a snare, we might not be able to hear it. Um, but if you were to just slam a Waves plugin, you're going to hear it. And it adds up over time. You know, if you got a little bit of distortion on 60 tracks, it can add up to sound really stale and harsh and hurt your ears. Um, basically, the idea is I will, again, all my track levels are at zero. I will turn my speakers all the way down and I will play the song and I'll play it all the way through. Now, on, on Nuendo, I have the ability to hold the peak levels forever. So I can click on the meters and um, it, will hold, it will hold the peak levels forever. Then I basically will play through the entire song, okay? So it's gonna hold the loudest peak on every single track. So I play through the entire song, let it register the loudest peak level, and I'll go through, and let's say I've got 10 tracks, and let's say the peak levels were, you know, negative six, negative one, negative 20, negative 0.5, then zero, or then all this stuff, and they all go, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Each one has a different peak level. 
What I will then do is uh, I will trim back, and if you're in Pro Tools, then you'll need to insert the trim plugin on the first insert of each track. Um, and I will trim that back to a Unity level, meaning every track will now clip at a different point, or at the same point, rather. So let's say, let's just use simple examples. Let's say I had three tracks in my session, and I played through the session, and track one clipped at zero, track two clipped at negative five, and track three clipped at negative 20. Okay, so um, then I have to set a reference level. So generally, I use negative 18 or negative 12 as my standard level. So that gives me, if I have everything peaking at negative 18, that gives me 18 dB of headroom. Does that make sense? I hope so. Obviously, I can't hear you respond. So hopefully you're nodding. Hopefully you're, you know, oh, yeah, I get it. Okay. So if I have a track that clips at negative 18, that gives it 18 dB of headroom before clipping, which is zero. So let's say in this case, the first one clipped at zero, which means I need to trim back the volume before any other plugins um, to negative 18. Okay. The second track clipped at negative five, which means I need to trim it back 13 dB. So... The third track clipped at negative 20, which means I need to add 2 dB if I want. I, I mean, you can always have too much headroom. I mean, that's fine also, um, but it's not a good thing to not have enough. So now when I play the song all the way through, if I clear the clips, if I play the song all the way through, every track will clip at negative 18. Exactly. I do that for every session that I have. I know it sounds like a little tedious, but really it only takes about the length of the song. I mean, let's be honest. In Nuendo and Logic, you have trim controls, like little trim pots, on the top of every single channel, which makes this very, very easy. So everything can now clip, or I say clip, uh, it can peak at the exact same level. And it gives us plenty of headroom uh, to work on our tracks. The idea here is it won't clip your plugins, it'll leave plenty of headroom for them to work, um, it'll just sound better. I mean, plugins sound better when you have to work at these levels. They just do. Like when you're working up in the, you know, when your tracks are, are peaking at like negative three, negative four, negative two, negative five, the plugins almost start to sound choked. And I know this might sound like, oh, really, you can't hear that. But you can. It adds up over time. Maybe not on one track, but over time it adds up in a mix. Um, I did a test to see if this was correct. Basically what I did is I took a session that I mixed that had about 60 tracks on it, and this took forever. This test took forever, but if you want to do it, go for it. I basically took a snapshot of every single plugin that I had on there. Then I, I, I printed the mix like that. I rendered a wave. And then I, I mean, I wrote down everything, how much gain reduction there was, how much, you know, everything. And then I went through and redid the mix with um, the exact same plugins on, just adjusted for my trimmed levels. So I bypassed all my plugins, I set all my faders to zero, and I played the song and I adjusted the headroom down to negative 18, or I should say the, the peak level down to negative 18 so that every track had at least 18 dB of headroom. Then I redid the mix and I adjusted the levels and uh, you know brought all the thresholds down to where they were compressing virtually the exact same amount on every hit. I tried to do it as close as I possibly could, but the result was the mix sounded worlds better. I can't even really explain that it was that big of a difference, but it was. I mean, it sounded cleaner, it sounded clearer, and um, I don't know, it just worked better. And a lot of you might be saying, well, if my track levels are that low, you know, if I, 
you know, I don't mix with my tracks at zero. I mix with them, you know, in between. So you're saying to yourself maybe, well, if my tracks peak at negative 18 and then I bring my fader down to negative 12, like, that's so super quiet. Who cares? Seriously, who cares? When they all add up to your master, if it doesn't, you know, if negative 18 doesn't work for you, if, you're, if your sessions aren't that big, maybe try negative 12 as a reference. Even negative 10 would help. So that would at least give you 10 more dB of headroom. On, I mean, on every track. So when all these tracks combine to the buses or to the master, all these tracks playing together might only hit the master at negative eight, negative six, at full volume, every track. And when you turn them down to normal mix levels, they might, uh, I mean, they might not even clip the master down until negative 18, negative 15. That's fine. If you need to boost it up in mastering, I mean, that's what mastering is for. You need to leave headroom on your master bus. That's completely fine. I mean, you should not be putting a limiter on your master bus. You shouldn't be limiting the crap out of your mix, especially in the mix stage. That's just not what that's for. You need to you need to be able to have no plugins on your master and it not clip. That's just the point of it. It should not clip. You shouldn't even be getting close to zero. You should be peaking at maybe negative six, I mean, negative five at the max. You need to have room for the mastering engineer to work. So if you're, you know, adding plugins to like bring down the level on your master, then your levels are all screwed up. This is how you do it. You, you, you play all your tracks, get the peak levels, you set them all to the same reference, and then right after that, what I do is, after all of mine are set to negative 12 or negative 18, I will select all my tracks and pull the faders down to negative 12 or negative 10. Then I play the mix and actually start mixing. So um, if my mix is, you know, at playing at negative 18, each track is negative 18, and then I pull the fader down to negative 10, that means that it's now playing at negative 28. And you might say, oh, it's losing resolution. It's losing resolution. Not really. The way that these mixers are designed in Nuendo and Pro Tools, they have mixers that will compensate for fader levels being low, um, especially in Pro Tools, in the new Pro Tools designs of the mixer. I mean, the mixer has some sort of ridiculous, you know, oversampled blah, blah, blah that the, the mixer can operate. You can turn the fader down to like negative 60 and you're still getting 24-bit resolution. So don't worry about that. It's not about that, okay? The idea is that you need all of your plugins to have plenty of room to work. Just get in the habit of doing that. You don't want to be clipping anything. If you're clipping a track, your gain's off. If you're clipping a plugin, your gain's off. If you're clipping your master with all your tracks playing at once, your gain is off. You have to have everything gain staged correctly. It's done in the analog world all the time, so it's not like we can just ignore it now that we're in digital. In fact, we need to look at it even closer in digital. So, like I said, after all the gain staging is done, I bring my faders down to negative 10, and then I just play the mix. And I will spend the first listen through of the mix um, getting levels. I don't really do pans yet. I usually save that for like the second mix, the second run through rather. And so I'll, send, I'll spend the whole first mix just getting levels. I'll take out some parts, I'll listen to some things. You know, I might, uh, I might solo up a couple things for a few seconds just to listen through and see what's up. And uh, I'll set fader levels, I'll kind of set a rough balance, then I'll listen to it again. And then on this time, I might start messing with uh, pan pots and, um, and grouping and things like that um, some more. You know, oh, maybe this should go to this group instead. Maybe this should go to that group instead. 
I will just work with that on the second pass, okay? I haven't EQ'd anything. Or, I mean, do as, do as little as you can up front, okay? Then, so after two passes of the mix, you know, I'm, uh, I've, I've sort of got my basic balance going on. You'd be surprised how many mixers that I've seen um, that avoid this. They just sort of immediately sort of start in with, a, you know, with an EQ and a compressor and all this. And for them, that works. For me, it does not. So if it works for you to just run in and go for it and start EQing and compressing, you know, then go for it. But for me, I have to sort of start little bits at a time. So um, I'm getting my levels, I'm getting my pans. Then the third pass of the mix is when I actually start to, you know, make decisions about what might need to be added. And I always try to work big to small, okay? What that means is I will start to adjust things like the master bus and the groups, like the drum group or the bass group or the, you know, if I've got like a bass amp and then a bass DI. And then if I've got guitar group, like rhythm guitar group or keys group, I will adjust those things first. So, you know, I might uh, add a little bit of low end to the bass group, which contains the bass amp and the bass DI. Or I might uh, add a little bit of top end to the keys group. And I might put a compressor on the master bus. And then I might cut, you know, put a tape simulator on the master bus. And then I might put an EQ on the master bus. And then I might put a compressor on the drum bus. You know, just little things at a time. One little tiny thing at a time. And I try to work big to small. So, you know, and, and generally these things are very subtle. It's not like, oh, 5 dB on the guitar bus. It's like shaping, just shaping, just general, you know, okay, I don't need anything below 60 hertz on the guitar bus. So I'll put a high pass filter on, okay? Um, I don't need anything below 40 on the drum bus. So I'll put a high pass filter on that. You know, the, the bass needs a low pass filter at 5K because I don't want to get any string noise or, or hiss or something. Little things at a time, little tiny things. And I'm again, I'm working big to small. So I'm starting with the, the overall impression of the mix. I'm listening to it as a song, as a musical piece, not just a collection of tracks. It is a song. So I'm trying to listen to these things um, all together in the big picture. So, you know, rather than, oh, how's the kick drum sound? How's the, you know, left guitar sound? I'm not listening to that. I'm listening to how does the drums sound? How do the guitars sound? How did the bass sound? How do all the vocals sound? And I might do little tiny tweaks at a time, just a dB here or there. Maybe a little compression on the vocal. You know, like I said, maybe something on the master. And um, from this point, after my third pass, this is about, you know, 15 minutes, I've sort of got this basic mix going that I kind of like. And depending on what it is, I will decide where to go from there. I will decide what to do. Different, again, different songs, different genres, different whatever will, will change my perception of things. Maybe on some specific genre, I say, you know what, I'm just going to start soloing up everything and listening for problems. You know, if I need something to sound perfectly clean and clear and kind of chopped up and edited perfectly, I might go through every single track and listen, okay, um, you know, this one's got some rumble. I need to put a high pass filter on it. Or this one's got some hiss. I need to play a low pass or use some noise reduction or I need to put a gate on it. Um, I might go through every single track and do that. Now, I generally don't do that, but it's on some songs, some genres, I might. Um, if it's a jazz song, it might be the complete opposite. I might say, what is the least I can do to this? You know, should I sit here for 30 minutes messing with the master bus only before I even touch a single track? You know, should I spend 10 minutes auditioning reverbs for the vocal? It really depends on the style and the genre. But in general, that is what I do for 
for starting a mix. That's how I start a mix. So let's review. Let's review what I do. So you take your mix that you've been working on while recording and you save it and you call it Rough Mix. Save it, put it aside. Then you save a copy as restarted. So you restart the mix, you clear all the effects, you clear everything, okay? So then you go through and name the tracks. Name them something good. Name them something usable. And then if it works for you, go and color the tracks. Color them what works for you, what you can use every single time in a mix to get the association quick and creative. Then you order them in the same way. You know, vocal first, then drums, then guitars, then backing vocal. You know, whatever works for you, whatever works in your workflow, whatever makes sense in your brain. For me, it's vocals, backing vocals, drums, bass, guitars, keys, percussion, effects. That's what it always is. And then from there, set your faders to zero, play the song, turn down your monitors, um, because it's going to sound like crap, play the song, and let all the peaks register. Then go through on each track, and again, it's the first insert or the trim control. It's before any other plugins, okay? So before any other plugins. Um, Now, you don't have to do this, obviously, like on groups or on the master, um, but just on the actual audio tracks. Let the peaks register and set a reference level, whether it's negative 10 or negative 12 or negative 18, and let it play and give each track headroom. Give each track working headroom so you don't clip any plugins, you don't clip your master, you don't clip your group, you don't clip anything. Clipping is bad, Um, especially in digital. It sounds terrible, and yes, it can add up over time. Then uh, go through and bring all your faders down to a set level, like negative 12 or whatever, negative 10, and just listen to the mix. Just enjoy it as a musical piece. You haven't set any pans. You haven't set any volumes yet. You're just listening to it. And then, you know, work at little bits at a time. You know, maybe turn the kick drum up or the bass down or the vocal up or whatever. Just tiny little changes. And maybe listen to the song again. And this time, just focus on the pans, okay? Where's everything going to go in the stereo spectrum? Am I going to use the in-between points or am I going to do it or am I going to do it LCR? We talked about that in another show. Am I just going to use left, center, right only? Or left, center, right, and then the 50% left and 50% right? Is that what I'm going to do? Or am I going to use random? Am I just going to turn and, and, and figure out where it sounds best? There's no wrong or right there. Then, from there, start working big to small, okay? Start focusing, okay, what does the entire song need? Do, do I need a compressor on the master? Or do I not want to do that yet? Do I want to wait until the end to put a compressor on? Or do I want to try mixing through it? They're completely different experiences, but you have to decide. You know, do I want an EQ on the master? Does the whole song need to brighten up a little bit? Um, You know, my theory is it would be better to use one EQ over the whole song than, you know, 50 little EQs doing tiny little things at each, um, depending on the, the quality of the EQ, of course. Um, And there are tons of mixers out there, professional mixers that use EQs on their master bus, whether it's a massive passive or whether it's a, you know, a a Neve, a pair of Neves, mic pre's, or a pair of um, whatever. It can be any pair of Pultex even, or there's that, uh, there's all kinds of products out there that people use for their master bus for just a touch of EQ. Um, I know some people that use the EQ3D, which is um, sort of recreated in, by a new company called MAG, M-A-A-G. And there's this little knob on there called Air that boosts up like way, way high. And some people will just put a little bit of that on their mix just immediately. Whatever works for you, you have to experiment. You have to find what you like. Do you like putting an EQ on the master? I don't like to mix with an EQ on the master, but that's just me. 
so for drums though, I might EQ the drums as a whole. You know, I might add some top end to the drums. I might add some low end to the bass channels. I might add some bottom end to the guitars or some bottom end to all the backing vocals or take out bottom end on all the backing vocals. So try to work big to small and just really listen to it. Like don't listen to individual elements. Listen to the whole piece and try to only do what you need to. Um, What I've found is in doing things this way, I'm able to do just the bare minimum amount and it always sounds better. I mean, I don't get caught up in, oh crap, I got to EQ this and gate this and compress this. Why? You don't always have to do that, okay? You don't. You don't always have to do that. You don't always have to gate the kick drum. You don't always have to compress the kick drum. You don't always have to compress the vocal. It just depends on the type of mix it is, and it depends on what works. Some mixes you will do, certain genres that everything is compressed, everything's EQ'd, everything's gated, everything is super tight and clean, and that's fine. Whatever works, okay? So I hope this has given you some insight into how to start a mix. Now, again, I try not to start a mix from a single thing. I try not to start a mix from, here's a kick drum and get that sound good. Here's an overhead. Okay, fine. Let's get that to sound good. I try not to do that. It just doesn't make sense to me. You know, Uh, the only version of that that makes sense to me is starting with the drums or starting with the vocal. Um, Because those, I mean, those, those are elements, right? You don't want to start with a a mic necessarily. I don't at least. Like kick drum mic. Because what what context do you have, you know? That kick drum mic might sound great in the context of all your drum mics. It might. Like you might say, oh man, this doesn't have any bottom end. But your room mics might have a ton of bottom end or whatever. So you really can't look at it that way in a lot of cases. And I can guarantee you if you stop working in solo so much and instead try to focus on big picture elements at the very minimum, you know, like the the entire scope of the drums, like every drum mic combined, what, what needs to be done? Um, you know, if there's not enough click on the kick drum, why don't you just turn the inside kick drum mic up? And if that doesn't work, then you might have to add some EQ. But only do something when you need to do it and really work out those faders. Really work out those faders and pans. Don't be afraid of them. So a lot of times what I'll do on a a lot of pop stuff is I will start with the vocal. I mean, I will just start the entire mix. After I get my basic balance, I will just solo up the vocal, and I will make it sound amazing, like to the point where I could listen to that vocal in solo, and I would just be compelled to just sit there and listen and stare into nothingness and be like, oh my gosh, they're so good. I, get, I try to get the vocal to be that way, where I'm listening to it and I'm, I fe- it's compelling and it feels emotional. And from there, that I can frame my mix around a vocal. You can't really frame your mix around a kick drum. Like, really, you can't. But you can frame your mix around the vocal, as you probably should. So get the vocal to sound great and then say, okay, I've got the vocal sounding amazing. I could listen to this vocal in solo and it would sound good. If it doesn't sound good in solo, I mean a vocal, then, you know, that's potentially some trouble. Maybe not, but potentially. Um, But the vocal needs to sound amazing. Then you can put the vocal in there and you can add in the drums. And because you have the context of the vocal, then the other elements will now make a little more sense. Okay, does the drum set sound like it's behind the drummer? Is that what I want? You know, is the drum, do the drums fit in the picture correctly with the vocal? because I know the vocal is good, right? I know the vocal is good. 
Um, and usually the stuff I do to a vocal in the beginning stages of a mix, I might not try to make the vocal sound finished, but I might try to get it, you know, 80% there. So I might add a little EQ, a little compression, I might even add a little reverb to it, to the point where I like it. And then it's a, it's a reference point for the rest of the mix. I can then add in the drums and say, okay, how are the drums working? Add in the bass, add in the guitars. Okay, guitars are too loud, or guitars need to be panned different, or guitars need a little EQ. Because every time you reference back to the vocal, you actually do have a concrete contrast and a concrete example of what is going on in the song. You can say, how does this fit in contrast to the vocal? How does this sound in contrast to the vocal? And that always works for me. So if I do solo up something, it's the vocal, and that's really it. Um, and even then, I try not to work in solo as much as possible. Um, I try just to get it done as a song and try to keep context and listen to it as a song. So I hope this show has helped you understand how I start a mix. I hope it's given you some insight into some things you might have been doing that you always wondered, maybe I should do it a different way. I hope it will challenge you to try your mix a different way. I hope it will challenge you not to just start with the kick drum. There are lots of people that can pull that off. I can't. And my job here in this show is to show you what other ways there are. Because some people don't know any different. They don't know, man, I don't even know what to do other than that. I, I guess start with the overheads maybe. But you don't always have to do that. Okay? You can start with the vocal. Some people start with the bass. Some people start with vocal and bass. Some people start with vocal and snare. I mean, whatever. Um, like I said, I like to start with either the whole mix up all at once, or I'll start with the vocal, and then add in the drums and bass, then add in the guitars, then add in everything else. So, again, if you guys have any questions, email me, recordingloungepodcast at gmail.com. That is recordingloungepodcast at gmail.com. It's no the, it's just recordingloungepodcast. Um, check out the Facebook page, just search for Recording Lounge, we're there. And check out the blog at recordinglounge.blogspot.com. And again, feel free to ask me any questions about anything or uh, comments about shows or comments about future shows that you want to see. And I do freelance mixing and mastering. You can contact me at that same email for uh, rates. And depending on the project, you might get a special deal because you're a listener. So I will talk to you guys soon. I hope you have enjoyed this show.